Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 224 being recorded on Thursday, June 25th, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Well, folks, we have a really awesome treat for you today. It's so good that I want you to go ahead and pause the show here uh, and leave us a five-star review and then come back. All right. uh, Welcome back. Uh, today on the show, uh, Jason and I have to admit we are kind of fanboying here, so we're going to try not to giggle too much uh, during this interview. Uh, we are excited to welcome one of the brightest minds, not only in e-commerce and retail marketing, but just marketing overall. Uh, so please welcome uh, us in bringing Daniel McCarthy to the Jason Scott Show. Dan is the Assistant Professor of Marketing at Emory's Goizeta Business School. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jason and Scott. Did I say that right? <laughs> Pretty much. Guizetta? It's a little bit more of a quiz kind of thing in there? It's like sweta, but guizueta. Guizueta. <laughs> okay, I got it now. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that, that That is actually part of the screening process to get into the school there, as you have to be. Yes, for now. this is why I'm not a professor of marketing at that school whose name I'm not great at pronouncing. Yeah, it's uh, check number one for us. I think in Dan's case, there might also be a math requirement that you may not like. Yeah, I saw he had some stats in his background there. Exactly. Uh, So, uh, Dan, before we jump into it, we do like to uh, give the listeners a little taste of uh, how um, you came to your your current um, professorship in your your case. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yes, I'd spent uh, about six years working at uh, a value-based hedge fund uh, before coming back actually for a PhD in statistics at the Wharton School. And in the middle of the PhD program, I made a, a pivot into marketing. And um, and so I actually, I finished the PhD in statistics, but half my committee were marketing people and half were statistics people. And I uh, ended up becoming an assistant professor of marketing uh, at Emory University. Uh, along the way, I also was bitten by the entrepreneurial bug. So in the... Uh, I believe it was in the third year of the PhD, uh, myself and my uh, advisor had co-founded a company called Zodiac, which was a predictive analytics software as a service firm. You basically predict what customers would do and use that to help marketers uh, make acquisition decisions. Uh, We grew that and then sold that in March of 2018 uh, to Nike. And then the following month, uh, we had also uh, co-founded a company called Theta Equity Partners, uh, which pretty much does nothing but what was the topic of my dissertation, which uh, we now endearingly call customer-based corporate valuation or CBCB for short. So yes, I kind of um, straddle both worlds. I'd say, you know, I'm 100% kind of a quant marketing uh, academic, uh, but definitely we appreciate, you know, things that work in practice and and, even participating in that uh, myself. Uh, very, very cool. Uh, and I did want to touch on a couple of things in your, your bio super quick. Uh, a, I love the fact that PhD in uh, statistics wasn't challenging enough. So you, you pivoted to the, the super complicated world of marketing. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a tricky transition. I, I would say uh, on the plus side, you basically I was doing the same predictive modeling that, that I was as a, you know, I'm just going to get a stat PhD and, and become a stat professor sort of a thing. Uh, but now it's just predicting what customers will do instead of predicting, you know, anything pretty much you know, stock prices or, you know, various things about sports teams or whatever else <laughs> it was that yeah. we were uh, doing a pre, pre-marketing yeah. pivot. Um, uh, and I, I for sure want to compliment you. I feel like you're in the small percentage of people that did a dissertation on something that you could totally commercialize. So I think that's super smart and savvy. Yeah, it was weird how it kind of ended up that way. But I, I really think it was, um, you know, I, I kind of view customer-based corporate valuation as really being at the intersection of 
marketing, finance, and statistics, like you really can't crack that topic without going pretty deep into all three, I, I think. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things that drew me to it was the fact that it allowed me to kind of do everything that I just find to be fun. <laughs> so yeah, I had the, the buy side hedge fund experience. I could bring that in, you know, the statistics, I could bring that in. And then obviously predicting what customers will do, you know, bring in the marketing too. Cool. The, um, so, so why did you make that marketing pivot? Was there, you, you were in stats and you kind of like started to do something connected to marketing or, or what, what was the connective tissue there? I blame Pete Fader. Yeah. He, uh, <laughs> he's a, a name that comes up a lot with the sort of things that I do, but, uh, you know, someone, um, who actually had worked out of the stats department, he said, you know, I think that you'd really get along with this Pete Fader guy. And, um, he's a marketer, but let's not hold it against him. <laughs> joking. Um, so yeah, I basically went up to the seventh floor, which is where the marketing department is at Wharton. And, um, yeah, and we really just kicked it off. I just really enjoyed the problems that he was working on. And um, yeah, I liked him enough that I just said, I'm, I, I want to do this. You know, I want to do this all the time. Yeah, very cool. Uh, well, you kind of raised it. So let's let's jump into this. So um, I've enjoyed your your analysis, your analyses that you do on Twitter and, and your papers. Um, but let's talk about CBCV. Let's talk about the origin of it um, and how you are applying it to to think about valuations. Yeah, so really, uh, yeah, a lot of the early work that I had done was uh, to to use these marketing models to predict what customers will do in the future and use that to compute customer lifetime value and other related measures. And typically in marketing, that's where the exercise ends. You say, all right, you know, we predicted well. I'm done. <laughs> um, and uh, basically, because of my work in valuation, I was like, you know, we could take this a step further and use this to actually inform a view as to how companies doing as a whole. And obviously, I, I won't say that I'm the first one to think about this. You know, Pete had done some work in, in this area. And um, you know, there's even some work uh, going back to 2004. Uh, but it was mostly kind of proof of concept, uh, not super well validated models. Um, and you know, it was really you know, saying, let's kind of peel back the onion a bit further with this. Um, and I think you know, that's really kind of one thing led to another. And you know, I now have uh, three academic publications and other two along the way on the topic. And you know, basically, um, there's just so many different facets of the problem that I just find to be completely fascinating. Cool. Well, in my world of startups, we think about valuations at a pretty simple kind of, uh, you know, kind of multiples, right? So you have a revenue kind of calculation, you have an EBITDA kind of a calculation, and then it's, I've gotten into Wall Street analysts, you know, they'll do a variety of discounted cash flow projections and these kinds of things. How is this different? Like, what, what do you, what does this take into consideration that those, those kind of mechanisms don't? Yeah, that's the beauty of it. It can really be all of the above. You know, it can be used to do an enlightened version of, you know, to, to come up with an enlightened revenue multiple, EBITDA multiple, you know, kind of straight up, you know, discounted cash flow valuation. Because ultimately, uh, if I were to kind of just summarize what CBCV is, is it's a way to make a more accurate revenue projection by really exploiting the fact that all the revenue has to come from customers who have to be acquired retained, make purchases and have spend associated with those purchases. And so uh, a typical Wall Street analyst will they'll look at historical revenues, you know, they'll bring in macro variables and use that to help, you know, inform a view as to what revenues will be in the future. And ultimately that revenue forecast will drive, you know, the DCF model or the EBITDA forecast. Mm-hmm. And all we're saying is if the company has a lot or even, you know, even a little, uh, customer data that they've disclosed. Let's bring that in too. And in marketing, we spend so much time and energy building these predictive models for what customers will do. And it's just basically saying, let's use those predictive models that are super well validated from within marketing to do that revenue projection just a bit better and, uh, and do it from the bottoms up instead of doing it you know, purely from the top down. So you're essentially bringing customers into the valuation discussion. Crazy. Yeah, it's we amazing. have this. Uh, Sometimes don't you wonder, like, why no one's done this before? <laughs> no offense, but <laughs> yeah, like, we, so these things seem so obvious in hindsight, but no one, you know, it's just like not a common thing. Yeah, that uh, and 
there's this video clip that we'll sometimes show of, of Jim Cramer talking about this work. He had uh, he brought up and spent a, a bunch of time on our Wayfair analysis, and um, he's, he's like, "What's so special about this? You know, academic research. What are these academics doing? Well, they they try to put a value on the customer." And they compare how much you spend to acquire the customer to how much you get after the customer is acquired. You're like, duh, <laughs> that uh, seems kind of sensible to me. Yeah. But but it hadn't been done before, and I think um, yeah, I think that was the real opportunity. Yeah, I think the first time it hit my radar is you wrote a really good article about Blue Apron. So they were one of the you know they they had this huge valuation. They had filed their S one, and then you put out you know I'll use the word scathing, but I think it was like. That, that may imply something that's not there, uh, a surprising analysis around their unit economics. Um, is that kind of the first time that that, that really hit the, the radar for you? That's the first time it really got mainstream attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so for listeners that didn't see that, um, maybe give a brief summary of what you discovered when you kind of peeled the onion on the customer metrics that were in the S1. Yeah, basically the company was growing really quickly. You know, they had something like 100% revenue growth, you know, year on year, and they didn't disclose a whole lot about uh, customer churn. And I was like, huh, well, that's interesting for a subscription business. You'd think they would put something about that in the filing. Um, And so the interesting thing was, even though they didn't put anything about customer churn, they did disclose a number of other scraps. And uh, and so basically what I did was uh, use the methodology that I had just published and use that to kind of triangulate my way back into what the company's retention curve was from all those different scraps that they put into their pre-IPO prospectus. And, um, and you're right, you know, the, the conclusion was kind of damning that, you know, something like 70% of the customers churn after six months. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously the implication being that they're requiring a lot of customers, I think on promotion and, and they just weren't staying. And, uh, and the other kind of, even more uh, damaging data point was that even though they were growing really quickly, their marketing spend was growing even more quickly Mm. than that. And and so, you know, essentially what I had inferred from the model was that their acquisition cost um, used to be something on the order of $60 and it's something like doubled, you know, in in the run up to the IPO. Yeah. Um, So yeah, they were buying revenue growth. So they showed strong, you know, top line growth, but the underlying fundamentals of the business had gotten significantly worse. That they were actually, you know, reasonably profitable at you know, call it a sixty dollar CAC. But if you double that, you know, it just makes things a lot worse on a, a per customer profitability basis. Yep, losing money to acquire the customer and then making it up in scale is never a, you know. I think we always call that the pets.com business model, but somehow Chewy got out of that. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Uh, um, yeah. so, I, so I think to finish the story, I think, I think, you know, everyone said that you were crazy. Your analysis was dumb. This is again, me as a third party watching this from afar. Uh, you know, uh, they had a huge IPO and then suddenly, I don't know how many quarters it took, but suddenly the dynamics you had anticipated came true. And that must've been kind of self, uh, uh, you know, must've been interesting to, to be proven right by that. Yeah, it was kind of a surreal experience. Um, the most surreal was we were going on a vacation and I just remember looking at my phone, you know, we just were having lunch outside of, you know, like a grocery store and that post had just gone viral. It ended up getting like, I don't know, rebroadcast or whatever the term is on like a hundred different websites. And, and, uh, all of the, basically all sorts of like LinkedIn comments and all sorts of other engagement measures, they were all um, you know, kind of hitting at the same time. And I had never experienced anything like that before. Um, yeah. Then your phone rings and it's a booker at CNBC and they're wondering if you can be in New Jersey in three hours. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> You're like, maybe. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so, uh, so I'll kick it over to Jason. I'm sure he has some follow-ups on this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm always saying this tongue in cheek, but like it turns out uh, that the one flaw in your whole model is you didn't factor COVID into the Blue Apron valuation. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I always say uh, if we were in January, there's nothing that we you know, we would have not predicted COVID. So this is no magic bullet. Um, no, but, no, but, you know, yeah. but I, I do feel like uh, they are one of those companies that has 
at least had a tertiary benefit from um, from the current climate. Uh, yeah, I think one other just related point is there's a, a distinction between the predictions and the framework. And I think at the end of the day, no one can argue the framework has to be true. And even the COVID boost that they're getting, I think the the framework can be super helpful in thinking about that. You know, is it coming from repeaters who are just repeating more, or is it coming from a whole bunch of new people you know, that are going to stay? Um, so, so the framework always has to be true. Um, it just provides this additional dimension. But our predictions, you know, that's a function of the model of the the data that's available, and, and obviously of things like COVID happening. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. The other thing that must be surreal is I got the, uh, uh, like you, I have a weird hobby in that I love to read S1s. Um, so I think I think the three of us kind of are probably only, only people that have that hobby. But <laughs> uh, so I was reading the Stitch Fix S1 and I was like, you know, I wonder what kind of churn they're going to give. And then they had all this cohort analysis and detailed churn analysis. I was like, wow, the Blue Apron dude like totally has changed the disclosures around this stuff. Um you know, I don't know if, if you viewed it positively or negative, but it was like really fascinating where you could tell that people were like, all right, people are going to look at these, you know, there's no way for us to hide what's going on in here. So we might as well reveal at least what we think are the good aspects of, of these underlying metrics. I thought it was pretty interesting that it felt like you had had some role in, in kind of making that happen. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, they put a lot more in. Um, and so definitely hats off to them. I would have wished, and so after they had, you know, filed their S1. I, I obviously was pouring through that thing very carefully too. Um, I wish that they had something like cohorted revenues over time. If they put something in like that, then for sure you would have seen an analysis from, from me slash us. Um, the reason we didn't do one was because they, they're, they're non-subscription enough that I wouldn't feel comfortable modeling them as a subscription business. And, um, and there wasn't quite enough data to fully, you know, account for all the, the facets of there being a non-subscription business. Um, it's probably funny. So on the other side, that's probably what they're going for. <laughs> they're like, how do we, how do we do this so that Dan doesn't write a paper on that? <laughs> not, not that it would be negative or positive, but you know, there's the, the, the blue apron case study. was not a, on the other side of the table, you probably wouldn't want uh, you know, that to happen. So. I flip it around to paper number three. So, you know, this uh, paper number one was, all right, let's lay out the framework for subscription businesses. So this nails down the telcos, the gyms, the blue aprons of the world. The second one was, all right, let's lay out the framework for non-subscriptions. These are all the e-commerce retailers. And then the third one was, let's lay out a model for, um, for businesses where we're not only incorporating SEC disclosures, like whatever we find in an S1, but also credit card panel data which the hedge funds are all buying and consuming voraciously. And, um, and now that, that, uh, that credit card panel data is, is wonderful for stitch fix in particular. It's um, the panel seems to be quite representative of their customer base. And, um, and so I think that that's kind of one of the emerging frontiers you know, for this whole area is, you know, can we be able to incorporate other data sources to, to be able to kind of do this exercise for more companies or you just, uh, you know, have more confidence in the results because we have uh, more data at our disposal. Yeah. The, the thing I found, so uh, I did an IPO of channel advisor and the thing I found really weird is you go public and you know, you're going to be doing all this transparency, but all your advisors are telling you to be really careful with what you disclose because, you know, if you just, there's this feeling that all the stuff you disclose in the S1, you're going to have to disclose forever. And, you know, there may be some reason where you want to wind down a business line or, you know, a pandemic hits and some of these metrics kind of swing different ways. So, so on the operations side, everyone's giving you this advice to minimize what you disclose, um, which I found as a, you know, as a private company, it was oddly kind of the opposite of what I thought being public would be like. So it's interesting to be on the other side of the table of that stuff. Yeah, we're starting to hear a bit more of that too. And uh, and certainly we've heard the same thing, like anything can and will be used against you. And so um, so there's kind of this risk-reward asymmetry that incentivizes companies to try and disclose as little as possible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and certainly I, I think that uh, there's kind of a fine balance to be drawn where, um, you know, I'll be the first to say, there's a certain line past which it is competitively sensitive and you don't want to necessarily open up the kimono. So all your competitors know 
exactly what you're doing. Um, but I think there is kind of a middle ground where uh, there are measures that companies can put in that they're very not competitively sensitive, but super informative. You know, they tell investors a whole heck of a lot of information about you know how the company is doing, and and they're small in number. You know, so we're not asking for you know a dozen different things. You know, we're just asking for like three things. Um, and I think that you know hopefully is is how we can help kind of move the conversation forward. You know that uh, that we we put something out there, but we make sure that it's reasonable and it's not overly costly to to the discloser. It, and I, I do want to double click on that just a little bit. Like um, it does seem like, so there's a, a fundamental part of your framework, the customer cohort chart, the C3. Um, and it, do I have this right? Like it does seem like some companies are starting to include C3s in their disclosures. It shows up a lot more than I thought that it, either it's that it shows up a lot more than I thought that it did or that, you know, maybe you know, we've had some small influence that, more companies are disclosing it because we're, we're yelling so loud. <laughs> um, maybe some combination of the two. Um, but yeah. actually, Scott, I think it goes back to one of the other points that you raised. I would love to see more companies disclosing that data in non-S1 filings. I feel like there, there's now at least a couple dozen companies that have put that in the S1. Uh, but as soon as they go public and they start filing the case and the queues or, you know, investor presentations, I, I stopped seeing it. Yeah. It's like two companies I know of that still disclose it. Um, yeah. So the advisors, they give you all these case studies of where it has bit companies in the butt. So um, a classic one's Twitter, right? So so Facebook got out first and they started talking about MAUs, um, monthly active users. So then Twitter launched and they just kind of went with that KPI. And then that KPI slowed down on them very quickly, whereas Facebook's accelerated. And everyone always uses that as, you know, if they hadn't disclosed that, um, and then, then what happens is the other thing that always that super surprised me first time going public was all the short um, hedge funds and some of the nasty tricks they do. So they'll take any of these metrics you put out there that could be cast in a bad light, and they'll use them against you to you know create a short trap kind of a thing. So, um, so there's all these case studies of that, and then you know we've fallen into you know over the years you, you're just shocked by the behavior that goes on with with some of these these crazy firms. I guess I was super naive that I thought it was more like VCs, but at this whole super high level where everyone's going to be like, you know, I'm fidelity and I'm really on board with your company for the next 10 years. Um, there is that, but it, it, you know, right now it seems like it's the minority versus the majority is a lot of these kind of long, short hedge funds that do all kinds of wacky stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so, I, I, I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so Dan, um, you know, it would be helpful uh, for some of our listeners that may not be as familiar with um, uh, CLV analysis and some of your work. Can you like, uh, this is hard on a podcast. Can you paint us a word picture of what a cohort analysis is and what what that C three looks like? Yeah. So, a co- so first, the, the maybe the easier one is the C three. Uh, that's simply saying, um, you know, if you op- if you open up a ten k, it's going to show annual sales year by year. You know, so twenty fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. This would be the same except it's in a chart format where the height of the bar is the amount of total revenue, uh, but it stacks that. So it kind of breaks it down by acquisition cohort. Um, so, you know, for a company that imagine a company was, um, you know, they first went public in uh, 2016 and now we're here in, in 2020. Um, we say, all right, here, here's our sales in 2020. Uh, but here's how much came from customers that were acquired in 2016. You know, here's how much came from customers that were acquired in 2017, 2018, 2019, and so on. So, uh, so it's basically chopping up that revenue bar into acquisition cohorts and showing that over time. And uh, what it allows investors to see is when a company acquires a group of users, um, how much revenue is that company getting from those users in future years? You know, is it going up? Is it going down? And if it's a B2C business, you kind of expect it to move move down. And the hope then is that it doesn't move down very much. Uh, in other um, sectors like, you know, software as a service businesses, typically if you're seeing a C3 chart, you're probably seeing expansion over time. You know, they acquire uh, a bunch of customers and then in future years, they're getting more revenue from those same customers than they did in the previous year. So 
Yeah, so there's a whole lot of information you can get from a C3 in conjunction with everything else that those companies tend to provide. Uh, and it goes back to that, you know, I think, to the first question of, you know, what is a proper cohort analysis? And it really is just that. It's saying, let's look at, let's not just look at everything that happened in 2020. Let's look at things by acquisition cohort. You know, let's bundle together all the people who were first acquired in 2016 and say, how good were they? And then let's compare it to all the people that were acquired in 2017. How good were they? And and if you repeat that exercise across all these years, this you know, whole new level of understanding of how healthy a business is. So for, for like an e-commerce business where you're not going to have a huge, you know, let's take subscription e-commerce businesses out of it. Like let's say a Macy's or someone like that, that has, you know, just kind of a more transactional model. What are you expecting that four year to look like? Like what's a really good looking one and what's a terrible one? Yeah, general generally in a transactional business like Macy's or any other, you know, uh, you know B two C, typically customers are a melting ice cube, and um, and so you'd be pretty happy if you know four years out you're still getting you know twenty percent of the revenue that you had gotten uh, when you first acquired those users, um, but they'll drop off pretty quick. Uh, so you know, so certainly. Um, you know, the, my general prior is, is that uh, re- revenue retention tends to be on the on the very low side, unless you're, you know, truly you know one of the exceptional uh, retailers. Have you ever done it for Amazon? Uh, we have not, because they have um, really reined back their disclosures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, to put them uh, yeah, yeah, the other issue with them, yeah. So they disclose like active users, but they disclose nothing about the number of customers they've acquired in, in different years. Um, obviously, if, if we even if we did have the information, probably right now it's like zero because <laughs> everyone's been acquired. Um, but the other wrinkle with them is, um, I think you know, many people would argue they're making most of their cash flow from their um, you know, from their uh, cloud computing business, and so you know, the retail business is certainly it's an important piece. Um, I think you know a lot of people shortchange it because they don't take into account the, you know, um, net negative working, uh, financial working capital position that they have. But, um, but still, yeah, you know, there's so much else to their business that it is a little bit tricky. Um, and I, like I do, like, I obviously, uh, we've been focused on uh, company valuations, which is a super interesting use case, and, and obviously quite important. Um, but that co- company valuation is far from the only reason you'd want to be doing a cohort analysis if you're or acquisition cohort analysis if you're a company right like isn't it even if you're going if you're a private company and you're not going to disclose anything it, it seems like there's huge benefits to understanding the value you're getting out of those acquisitions and it helps helps you plan uh, future investments no oh tremendously so yeah and actually you know, so for example the the marketing use cases i think are at least as compelling to marketers as yeah, as it is from a valuation perspective to the CFO. Um, yes, yeah, so I kind of, I, I think of this way of looking at the world as kind of like the the translator that allows the marketers to speak with the finance people and have a common language between them. And yeah, I think it can allow marketers to communicate the value that they're creating in a way that finance people would um, would respect and understand. And, um, and in reverse, you know, so I think you know, finance people can then um, you know, communicate that onto their investors, uh, which increasingly they're having to. So, um, so suddenly, you know, I think as these ideas uh, take hold a bit more, it's as if the CMO uh, becomes a lot more uh, powerful <laughs> because uh, they're kind of the trusted advisor that can actually really explain what the heck is going on with the customer base in a way that the CFO is just not going to, to be able to. Um, but at the same time, they're going to be a lot more accountable, you know, because suddenly uh, everyone is is really obsessing over things like the retention curve, which are probably a little high level, you know, for your typical CMO, you know, that they typically are are thinking about uh, more tactical measures. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I, if you don't mind, I, I would like to double click on that a little bit. Uh, just a side note for listeners: uh, it's funny we uh, often call those the visual cohort analysis. We call it a wedding cake. 
um, which I think is like a good mental image, right? Like because you see, uh, you see all these new new colored layers of like different acquisition cohorts stacked on top of each other, um, and if things are going well, the the layers get like thicker in the in the middle over time. Or uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, is that a is that an industry term or did I make that up? You know, I had never heard of that term before. Oh. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, well, I, I, we use it with multiple clients, so I don't know. Um, uh, yeah. So you can I like it, that. though. Yeah. You, Dan, Dan, you can have it for free. Um, but in exchange, you can settle a, a, an age old question for me. Um, customer lifetime value, CLV, uh, lifetime value, LTV. Uh, I, I hear people use those acronyms interchangeably. Like, are they different and is there one that you officially prefer i yeah i think that there's a lot of questions about you know what should be defined as what i've traditionally defined those as as being equivalent to each other uh but the distinction that i draw actually is is one that i've i haven't really heard other people draw you know which is uh, clv or ltv versus uh the post acquisition value of a customer so you know, to me, I think the two the two key components of a customer's value are how much you spent to, to bring them in the door, and that's the CAC, and then all the value that you get after they're acquired. And to, to me, I call that the post-acquisition value of the customer. And so if you take the, the PAV and you subtract off the CAC, that gets me to customer lifetime value. But there's just so many people who actually would say that CLV is PAV <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and they'll have no definition for CLV. Um, so, so I think, yeah, one of the first things that I'm really hoping that we can do, it's almost the simplest thing is, is just let's agree on some common, common definitions for these terms. You know, I, I think that everyone would benefit and there'd be a lot less confusion when we're all talking about uh, these terms and, and, you know, potentially having different ideas in, in our heads as, as to what they actually mean. Yeah, no, I, I think that would be super helpful because I, I, it is, it, uh, I, you know, in the virtue of my job, I go into a lot of different clients and the vernacular is totally different. And this, you may, your eyes may roll in the back of your head, but I would even say like amongst my client base, there's not even alignment on what CAC is. Yeah. Well, and also CLV, I so frequently see people computing it just off of sales they'll not even factor in cost yeah it's revenue <laughs> it's it's like customer lifetime revenue not customer vi- lifetime value right <laughs> or- yeah and you know finite horizon forecast and you know it just the list goes on as to all the different ways you can kind of screw it up <laughs> in my view um so. uh so i have this kind of simple mental picture of how this whole discipline evolved and i i'd, I'd love for you to confirm that i have it right or correct me if i'm wrong um but I sort of imagine that in the early days of thinking about CLV, that it was primarily a marketing KPI. Um, and then it feels to me like it evolved into being, a, in, in really good mature companies, it evolved into being a corporate KPI. Um, and then, you know, largely because of your, your paper and, and uh, blue, not, uh, blue Apron going viral, uh, now it's become a, a corporate valuation tool. Like, is that... The, is that the matriculation that it sort of flowed through or am I making that up? Well, I think it's definitely the case that CLV has been born and raised a marketing a marketing KPI. Um, yeah. And I think now we are seeing that gradual progression that it's showing up more in investor decks, which has been super heartening to see. Um, in terms of the link to cut to corporate valuation. So our work will very frequently uh, talk about customer lifetime value, but usually it's kind of a summarization of like the unit economic health of the firm. It's, it's obviously a really important one, um, but but actually, you know, we kind of focus on on this other thing that yeah, I think some people will call it customer equity. You know, I'll, I'll call it you know customer based corporate valuation, but it's really drawing this distinction between um, you know, kind of a, a per customer measure of profitability and the overall value that's being created. And, um, you know, kind of the, the example that I'll often give is um, if you wanted to maximize the CLV of your business, uh, you should go after this super tiny market <laughs> where there's just like a few super good customers in it. And, um, and they'll all be great, you know, but there's so few of them that 
you're leaving money on the table, you know? So, so it's kind of, what we want to maximize is kind of like P times Q, you know, like the, the quality times the quantity. And, um, and so I'll actually kind of have this notion of the five horsemen of CBCV and that that's actually, you know, what, what companies should be striving to, to optimize. I, I love that. Uh, and I, I'm a big fan of those sort of false of using a metric as a KPI, because per your point, like you can just manipulate one of the variables and make it awesome. Uh, I frequently help clients impre- increase their conversion by just dramatically reducing their traffic to their best customers, for example. <laughs> uh, the, uh, so I, and I do have a bone to pick with you and I've been really good about trying not to bring it up until now, but I just can't resist. Um, so I primarily work with marketers. Um, and in my world, like even LTV as a metric is a vastly superior metric to what a lot of my clients tend to live in. Like sadly, like I have a lot of clients that like have KPIs around things like awards and return on ad spend, which I like find abhorrent, right? And so often we're we're trying to um, move people towards more financial based um, measure, like truly measurable, quantifiable metrics. Um, and you you mentioned in the intro that you you started this previous company Zodiac, um, which actually provided both tools and services that help companies make that progression. Um, and you don't know this, but I actually prescribed Zodiac to a bunch of clients, and then you went ahead and sold the company to Nike, and they promptly fired all of my clients. <laughs> yeah, no that uh, that was the the most difficult part of the sale it was honestly. Um, we were academics, you know, so we, we almost feel like this semi-religious, you know, desire to get people to use customer lifetime value to, to be using these models and benefiting from them. And so to kind of get these companies to buy in and then kind of, you know, have to, we didn't fire them. We were forced to. Sure. Uh, sure. No, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly, but, te- uh, nobody blames you for doing what's in your own <laughs> best economic interest. I'm teasing you. But yeah. I, it was like it, it was Not a so super bad. useful tool, and I, I I am curious, and it's it's fine if you want to pass on the question. But um, there are some other companies that have emerged that I wouldn't say have the exact same offering that Zodiac had, but uh, some sort of overlapping value prop. And so I think of companies like um, Ambition Data or Dynamic Action, and I'm I'm just curious if you've ever looked at them, or or even better, if you've you've come across any other companies that you think are doing a good job in that space? Yeah, thankfully, a lot of them are, are friends of ours. So, uh, so Ambition Data, Allison Hartsoe is a good friend. Um, they, they do some good work. You know, they're certainly, um, I think they're more tactically oriented than Zodiac was, but um, you know, I think their philosophies are you know, very consistent. So, you know, both um, you know, Peter Fader and myself, you know, we've been on, on our podcast as well. Um, Retina.ai is another one that I, I like with the, what they do. Um, they basically have, you know, a version of a probabilistic model for you know, how customers behave and, and they'll use that to help, you know, oftentimes marketing analytics departments, um, you know, make acquisition retention decisions, but I wouldn't um, also leave out Theta. <laughs> so you know, clearly I'm not here to, uh, to pitch the company, but um, I'd say about half of our revenue is actually coming from corporates directly. And, um, and, and while we're not helping the marketing department make those tactical acquisition retention decisions, um, you know, we do provide, uh, kind of the, a lot of the, the machinery that we use to make the predictions is, is very similar or even better than, than Zodiacs. Um, we use it to obviously summarize, uh, how the business is doing in terms of, uh, CLV and CAC over time. Uh, but then we'll also slice that by, you know, things like acquisition channel. And so to the extent that you want those you know, very highly validated uh, predictions to, to see where you're getting the highest uh, return on investment, you say by acquisition channel, this would, would give you that. Um, so. Oh, very cool. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, and Scott's chomping the bit to get back uh, in, into the conversation, but I did want to, um, I, f- I feel like I have this limited window to learn some stuff. Uh, a sometimes a knock on the like. So one of the things about the customer uh, base valuation is it uh, it it's a very bottom of the funnel monetizing the customer, and therefore this is how 
valuable that acquisition channel was or how valuable the company is or whatever else. And um, the the old school CMOs I I work with, like when we start talking about those those kinds of um, processes, they quickly go to, yeah, Jason, but that doesn't really capture my long-term brand equity. Like I, I'm building this value that doesn't show up in that number. Uh, and I, I'm imagining you you have to have heard that before and debunked it. Yeah, I love that question because uh, in general, and this is where I will get a little bit controversial. Um, again, all the revenue has to come from customers making purchases. And so if you believe in that accounting identity, which you know, hopefully that's completely uncontroversial, then um, then you have to kind of buy into the notion that it all comes down to acquisition, retention, ordering, spend, and, and then variable profits. And so, so, so to kind of flip it back on, on, on the old school CFO, I'd say if they're spending on things that aren't generating any measurable effect on those five horsemen of CBCV, then it's worthless, completely worthless. <laughs> um, but to, to then give a, you know, a little hat tip to, to the old schooler, um, I think what, what they may be trying to say is that uh, I can make an investment today and I may not necessarily see the long-term effect of that until three, four years from now, you know, that, um, you know, that the, the long-term retention of those customers will be better because of the investment that I'm making. Um, but I think that's a very important distinction because it's saying that you can look at and just focus 100% of your attention on the CBCB framework. Um, it's just an empirical question of how we can be able to measure its effects rather than saying, you know, actually we need to focus on brand equity too. Yeah. And ironically, like that cohort analysis is, is validating, like when, you know, when it's done well, it's validating the, the investments made in that long-term brand equity, right? Because they, they show up in like subsequent years value for those cohorts. Um, Exactly. Yep. The, uh, and then one more uh, totally wonky one. So, so again, old school CMOs, like, uh, man, where should we put our marketing dollars? And in particularly, like, they, we all have this debate. Um, what's what should we be putting above the line? I.e., what should we be spending to build brand equity versus what you know should we be spending to drive actual activations? Like things Scott and I talk about all the time, like e-commerce and. Um, those sort of things. And like historically, like, I mean, from the 1970s, marketers use this uh, uh, media mix modeling, which is pretty archaic. Um, and lately, like as I work with all these ad agencies, the the academics that come up constantly are um, uh, these guys, and I've never met them, uh, Les Bennett and uh, Peter Field. Have, are you even vaguely familiar with them? Did they ever? No. Yeah, okay. Not, uh, well, then we'll skip it. But uh Suffice it to say, um, they they did a quantitative analysis of a bunch of companies and and found that in general the best like mix of investment was sixty percent brand, forty percent activation, um, and therefore there are a ton of like quite large uh, marketing enterprises with very large budgets that loosely follow that parameter, and I, it it just seems too simple to be true to me. So I was just curious, but uh, I'll, I'll let you take a pass on that and I'll, I'll let Scott jump back in. Yeah, this is, um, so So just kind of apply this to an interesting argument. So uh, two of my favorite followers on Twitter are Webb, he's been on, on the show. And then this uh, guy, Digitally Native, I forget his name, he's in Austin. Um, and they're constantly going back and forth over, well, first of all, they, they, they really focus on the realm of digitally native vertical brands. So I don't know if you've dug into that. There, there unfortunately haven't been a lot of um, IPOs in there. So there may be a, a lack of data on it, but um, they kind of go in the circular argument and I'll try to do my best of, of kind of figuring it out. Uh, so digitally native dude will say the one metric you should focus on as a digitally native vertical brand is gross margin. And then, uh, then Webb comes in and says, nope, it's got to be, um, you know, so first of all, he doesn't like it when companies raise capital. So it's like, it's got to be bootstrapped. And the only way to bootstrap it is CAC LTV. And then they, then they, the kind of wheel spins around and goes back and forth and back and forth. Do, do you have a point of view on, on that? Uh, yeah, I kind of go back to, you know, to me, the ultimate goal is customer-based corporate valuation. 
Now, I would say that does kind of lean more towards CAC LTV, but I'm not sure that the distinction needs to be that, you know, that big because ultimately, you know, a higher gross margin is going to drive higher lifetime value, um, all else being equal. So, um, so certainly, you know, but you know, even there, um, gross margin is not the only component of a variable margin. Yeah, I think that if you really find the notion that lifetime value is important, well, the profit margin uh, that you'd use in that calculation should be the effect, the fully loaded effective variable profit margin. And so you should be factoring in, you know, I'll, uh, this is going to be probably you know very common knowledge to, to you both, but you know, things like fulfillment expenses and you know, merchant processing fees, which oftentimes are not included in cost of goods sold. Um, you know, they're included in, in, uh, in operating expenses. So, you know, we want to put those in as well. Um, but I'd also include <clears throat> effectively variable indirect expenses too. So even things like, and this is going to sound totally brutal and conservative, but even things like accounting expense, um, you know, companies, as they grow, they need to hire more accountants. And even companies like Microsoft spend 10% of their sales on expenses like that. And so, so what I want is I, I want that lifetime value figure to represent, if it's positive, that means there's a path to profitability. And if it's negative, there is not a path to profitability. And you won't get that if you're using gross margin as, as your margin. Um, so... So then, so tactically, how do I allocate that? Like I just divide by the number of customers acquired over that period and all my costs in that period? Yeah, there's a few different ways you could do it. You know, I'd say you know, the kludgiest, simplest way would be take all of the expenses that are not direct expenses mm-hmm. and, uh, and regress them against sales. And you know, what that can help you get a sense for is the relationship between those expenses and how they grow as your revenue grows. Um, obviously if you're inside the company though, um, oftentimes companies, especially if they're young, you know, they'll kind of pre-build. And so you may see operating expenses grow quickly then, but it's not because those expenses are variable, you know, they're just kind of building for the future. Um, so that's really where, yeah, I think if you're, if you're an inside operator, um, you'd have a much better view of that as an outsider, I think conservatively, most any company can simply, at least at the very start, just knock off 5% of sales and just say, you know, probably at least that much is going to be effectively variable indirect expense. And, um, and then just, you know, kind of continue to run the analysis as you may otherwise have done. Got it. So, so CAC is easy to get your head around. And then LTV, you're essentially saying LTV should almost be like cash flow. Uh, LTV should be the net present value of, of all the future variable profits after a customer's acquired. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's happy to kind of peel that one back, but I yeah. know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone's calculating it that way. That's why it's funny. This, this is why I like Theta is be, uh, or uh, uh, Zodiac is because they do it for you. <laughs> they provide yeah. the math. And we'll, you know, we're totally an open book. You know, we'll, we'll show you the academic papers yeah, so hopefully everyone can kind of buy into exactly how we're going about, the, you know, the calculations that we're going about. But, but yeah, I mean, at some point, I think the math, um, it's a very hard prediction problem. You know, so to be able to have someone, you know, we've now done probably 250 different, you know, uh, paid engagements uh, on behalf of, you know, 250 different firms. And so you, you kind of develop that dirt under the fingernails that you know, it could be hard if you're just, a really smart operator, you know, who's building a, a business and don't, don't even have the budget necessarily for, you know, much or any data science team. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big study of Amazon if you haven't uh, figured that out yet. And um, it's always funny because people always have asked Jeff Bezos these things and he always comes back to cash flow. Um, and I almost wonder if he kind of like intuitively got to a similar place where you have where, you know, one of his answers will be customers, you know, I can't take a gross margin to the bank. You know, I can't take 50% to the bank when, when in the early days when people accused him of being a super low margin business um, uh, and, or like uh, with Amazon prime, they thought he was crazy. And, you know, I think he was thinking, I think he was way ahead of the thinking here. Um, but what I do you agree. think about, do you, do you agree with, with that 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people they'll they'll, they'll look at these uh, highly free cash flow negative, um, you know, digital companies oftentimes, mm-hmm. and they'll say, well, you know, yeah, but but Amazon, <laughs> and uh, if you look back carefully at Amazon, um, typically those comparisons are very bad. You know that uh, I think it was in Amazon's second year, you know, maybe it's third that it was operating cash flow positive, and um, and so even the, even though it took them you know, a while longer to become gap profitable. Um, who cares about gap if you're bringing in the cash flow? You know, that that's ultimately what, what drives the value of the firm and keeps the lights on. And so, um, so, so I think they did a lot of things, right. That, that are still underappreciated and uh, have, have still led to a lot of confusion with um, you know, kind of this emerging crop of fast growing money losing companies. Yeah. One, one random observation is you, um, so I think you said in your bio, you were at like a hedge fund doing analysis of, of things. Um, but Jeff Bezos was too, right? Wasn't that where he kind of started? Is there, is there something that you think came out of that where you both kind of saw this, this kind of light bulb moment that, you know, this is the ultimate metric for, for these kind of businesses? Yeah, I know. I think it, he was a D.E. Shaw, and I forget yeah. what role he, he he was at the firm. But uh, but I would say there is something, um, and actually this goes back to Zodiac Theta. Finance people, you know, we've often gotten the question, so how do you find the comparison yet? Selling to a marketing person versus selling to a finance person. And I'll often say, you know, selling to the finance person is easier, actually, because even though you're presenting them with this mark, ostensibly marketing way of looking at the world, ultimately it's net present value. And they just live and breathe that. You know, they've been doing that for <laughs> probably since they were an undergrad. You know, whereas marketing people sometimes have, sometimes haven't. Um, and you know, to, to a finance person, I think they'll look at a lot of this and they'll immediately see the analogy to project finance. You know, that project finance, you know, they, you spend money on a project, you've got this, you know, you think about payback periods, you think about the net present value of the project, you think about the internal rate of return. That's just how they think about their project. And so if you just replace project with customer, and suddenly it's like a light bulb goes off and they say, oh, you know, that, that totally makes sense. Um, the customer is my project. Um, so, yeah, so I think that to, to them, this is all quite natural. Um, to marketing people, uh, there could be more of an education you know, that, that's required to kind of get them where they need to be. Uh, I, I will totally buy that. I do have to point out, uh, early in the show, I complimented you on monetizing your, your academic background, but now that Scott's comparing you to Jeff Bezos, you probably have a little ground to make up. <laughs> Definitely a loser. compared to him. <laughs> Jason builds you up. I tear you down. Exactly. It's our good cop, bad cop. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, pivoting a little bit. Uh, I'm curious, like if, if you, uh, so a bunch of the companies in our space, we talk about all the time. Um, uh, and, you know, where there is some debate about how sound the unit economics are, um, you know, we talk a lot about companies like Shopify and uh, uh, Peloton and Chewy. Like, do you uh, do you like look at any of those companies? Do any of them provide enough data that you've kind of formed an opinion? Yeah, actually, all three. Um, I haven't done a formal customer based corporate valuation of Shopify, but I'd love to. And um and they're actually one of the firms where I've seen um, a customer cohort chart outside of the S1 filing. <laughs> and uh, as you can imagine, um, you know, as you were alluding to, Scott, uh, when companies disclose these things, it's probably because it looks good. And, uh, and that definitely was the case with Shopify, you know, that their, their C3 looks amazing. Um, and, and they're an interesting case because, you know, so, they're kind of a, a business in a box, whatever the you know, uh, terminology is now. They'll have a lot of uh, companies that, you know, they, they go kaput, you know, they, they go out of business. But they get so much incremental business from those who, who survive uh, that they see very strong revenue retention over time. Um, so, you know, I haven't, I, I'll be the first to say I haven't done out the math as to, you know, say what, what their marketing ROI is, but... Uh, but it must be quite good. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know how, like how close you follow it, but like their CAC is actually quite low. So that helps too. I don't think yeah. they do any marketing. That's another thing. Exactly. They've always said that they let the product do the marketing. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So even better. 
you know? Um, so it's really, it's, it, so I think, you know, then it does become a question of, of valuation. Um, but even the valuation question, it becomes really hard. I was actually just tweeting about this a couple of days ago that, um, you know, if you have very strong revenue retention, presumably you're earning a very high return on your marketing investment. And, um, and there's a very strong analogy between marketing ROI and uh, the return on invest, the marginal return on invested capital of the business. Um, so for a business like Shopify, I'd be astounded if their marginal return on investment wasn't you know, at least an order of magnitude higher than their weighted average cost of capital, like the re- required rate of return uh, that investors demand of them to, to supply them with the capital that they have. And in theory, if your um, if your return on invested capital is permanently above your WAC, there's no you you would deserve an infinite valuation. <laughs> uh, I think they're so, getting there. Yeah, it, so so I'll be the first to say that. But I, I would say for Shopify, you know, there is a valuation question that we all know. Um, you know mean reversion is 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 a reality, and um, and so when you know, when those economics start to kind of go back to levels that are, you know, more in line with competition, you know, how does that all net out? And, um, and so I think you know, that, that's kind of the open question there. Um, so yeah, valuation, it's, uh, it's not purely a function of, of current period CLV. You know, I, I wish it was that easy, but, um, but it's not. Uh, if it was super easy, everyone would be doing it. So where would the fun in that be? Uh, have you looked at Peloton at all? Maybe, uh, pre COVID or I assume post COVID they're now like, uh, the next trillion dollar valuation. Yeah. So I, uh, again, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of an S1 geek, like, like you both. So, um, when they dropped the S1, I looked at that one really carefully and especially because, um, there was a lot of controversy. I don't know if, if you were following this at the time that, uh, that their churn rate was just about to spike. And um, and they were timing the IPO at just at the point where a whole bunch of these prepaid, you know, customers are locked in for two, three years. Boom. You know, now the IPO, all those things are you know, going to move to month to month contracts and a whole bunch of people are going to churn and their, you know, their average churn rates going to, to quadruple or even more. And um, yes, yeah, so I felt obligated to kind of jump in <laughs> uh, to see what the heck was going on. And, uh, and so I posted this analysis on LinkedIn, you know, so full, fully transparent, and I even provided the spreadsheet showing all of the calculations <laughs> just so that people could see or point out if I'm wrong. And, um, and the main conclusion that, that I came to was, now, you know, their, uh, their churn seems pretty low, and there's no smoking gun. You know, it should probably stay low. And, um, and I would say you know, even pre-COVID, you know, thankfully, that that seem to bear out as being true. Um, so we didn't go all the way to, I didn't go all the way to valuation, but, um, but certainly, you know, I've, I've run like hardcore statistical models on them. Gotcha. And then I'm assuming about $400 billion in value transferred from gyms to them as a result of the shelter in place orders. Yeah, they've definitely benefited. <laughs> so but it's just a bike with an iPad strapped to it. Who would have thought? But yeah, there's still, it's amazing. And this thing, again, it goes back to blue apron. Um, yeah, they're they're always the haters, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and for Peloton, there was still a whole bunch of people who argued that, uh, you know, because of the economic contraction, unemployment at fifteen percent, there's this super expensive bike. Are people going to pay two thousand three hundred bucks for a bike? You know, um, and uh, and that has I I was on the opposite side of that trade. Yeah, you know, I was openly in webinars saying. Um, yeah, don't be surprised at how many <laughs> how many wealthy people are retaining their jobs and buying Pelotons now, and uh, and yeah, you know, it seems like that that's that's played out as well. Oh yeah, and and now they all those wealthy people have the capex invested in that bike, and they're presumably less likely to to renew their gym membership when, when they're able to. Yeah, yep, and I think that's one of the arguments for why. Um, why their churn should remain generally quite low, you know, is that, um, you know, people are paying $2,300 for a bike. Um, 
you know, are they willing to pony up the 30 bucks or whatever it is a month for the, you know, for the subscription? Definitely. You know, they huge sunk cost fallacy, but you know, still sure <laughs> people fall for that. Uh, you know, that, that's the oldest trick in the book. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, I think that's going to be our next podcast is all about those cognitive biases. <laughs> so that'll be a perfect transition there. And then uh, 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 Chewy, have you looked at Chewy at all? I have not looked at Chewy personally. So I have, um, it, it's been nice to see there are now more and more people, um, you know, kind of doing their own CBCV analyses. And so um, there was one super smart person who had done some interesting analysis on them. Um it, it ended up, his conclusion was bearish, um, you know, that uh, things did not look good. And I also, I, I do agree that the the way that they define the proportion of people who are on like auto ship or, or whatever they call that program is, is, um, is very aggressive. But, uh, but I actually, I, I haven't done a CBCV analysis. Okay. Uh, mildly interesting, like they, they had their, their, first earnings call post um uh covid and you know of course reminder uh like their revenue growth has been wildly awesome and they're they're one of the few direct to consumer companies that you know has has vastly exceeded a billion dollar in sales um they're really struggling to be profitable the covid quarter was their first quarter where they had a profitable ebitda but earnings was still negative um but, uh which is why I was curious if if you see like, are, you know, are they just on this Wayfair style treadmill where they can never make money or or, you know, is, is there a model where they scale out of that? But uh, one of the things that was interesting they mentioned is, uh, man, one point six million new pet owners adopted a pet in covid. And we think the covid cohort for us is worth 90 million dollars this quarter. Like I just that was it, like it wasn't so much. A, I mean, it was they were they didn't provide data, but they had a narrative around uh, an acquisition-based cohort in their in their earnings call, at least. Wow. Yeah, I was about to say um, that they're going to argue, you know, with all the pet smarts of the world shut down, that all that business is now increasingly going to to Chewy. But um, yeah, well, I think actually, there's some there is some data there, right? Like pre-COVID, twenty-two percent of of uh, pet spending was e-commerce, and you know, uh, in COVID, it's it's like thirty-five percent. So like. All those new pet owners, like clearly, you know, were born digital, uh, provide you know suppliers for their pet food and all that stuff. Yeah, and that's like a, a free gift that COVID has given to these companies. Oh my gosh! Yeah, there's a lot of free gifts and a lot of free. Uh, I don't know what the right uh, bowl in the wham- bowl in the <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh, that that have been like disproportionately handed out. It's kind of kind of brutal with the winners and losers. Uh, not, not not just disproportionate, but in some sense random. You know, yeah, there's a, a lot of otherwise great companies and, you know, just so happens, well, you were a mobile gaming company, so you will be a winner. <laughs> you were a, you were an underwear seller. You, know, you will be a loser. Yeah, <laughs> but you're except if you're an underwear seller that also sells lettuce, in which case you're you're a winner <laughs> <laughs> like that. Those are the weird distinctions, right? Like, yeah, um, the meal kits you know, have to go back to Blue Apron. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I feel like I saw you on one of the new shows talking about uh, uh, Wayfair and COVID. Did you like? You want to recap your your thought process there? Yeah, yeah. So obviously, I've, yeah, I've been following Wayfair for a while now, and um, you know, uh, gotten probably as much press on them as as with Blue Apron, and um, and they they had first finally, you know, it was as if the writing was finally on the wall. They said they. Uh, the CEO had even said, we were growing too quickly and we're going to now lay off a bunch of people and move to more, you know, sustainable growth. And then COVID <laughs> and, uh, and basically, um, you know, I was speaking with someone from CNBC and it ended up, you know, being featured in, in our article, but it's something like 86% of, of all home goods sales had been um, brick and mortar. And so suddenly COVID just shut all that down. And, you know, this little slice, you know, the other uh, 14%, suddenly they're the only game in town. And not only that, Wayfair's biggest competitor within home goods had been uh, Amazon. And Amazon now is prioritizing essential goods. So they're not focusing a lot on on home goods. Um, So they're not only kind of the only game in town when you compare them to the brick and mortar players, but they're also, you know, one of the only games in town, even on 
online. Um, so, so they've seen their growth, you know, go from something like you know, 20% or 25% to 90%. And presumably that's all, I would imagine it's pr- quite profitable growth that there's just a lot of people now who are organically coming to Wayfair and, um, and making their purchases there because they, you know, they want that new chair to put in their work from home office. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so they really, they benefited on all sides from, from COVID, which, you know, hat, hats off to them. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that it's been, uh, it's been good for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be, inter- I mean, I, obviously we all wish all these companies the best. It's going to be interesting. Like, Hey, they, they've got to be able to be, get profitable on that, on that revenue or, or like, certainly it's going to be scary and hopefully they can, they can leverage all those new customers into a, 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 a long-term viable business. Um, yeah, I think but, the, the long game, yeah, the big question that I have, and it's still to me now, it's, it's just an open question. I feel like, you know, thankfully, you know, I feel like our thesis was validated. The stock actually fell to within our valuation range before, you know, things went crazy with COVID. So I, I feel like I don't have a whole lot of skin in the game right now, but, um, but I do still wonder, um, you know, those stores will eventually come back online. Some of them are closed permanently, like Pier One, there's another company called Tuesday, they, they're liquidating, you know, so, so that supply is not coming back on the market. But, but, you know, we will still see a lot of, you know, home goods stores reopening. And then Amazon is going to reprioritize furniture. And so I think there is a question of how much of the, the growth that we're seeing at Wayfair, how much of it's going to stick and how much of it will go back to, to what we'd seen before. Um, I, yeah, I, I kind of, I think it, it, it's it's a question of how severe COVID's going to be. I think there's certain variables that I just don't have a good sense for right now. But um, yeah, I think that that will be a big part of the valuation story yeah. next year. No, no, I think you're right. Like I, I you know, it's going to be interesting because I, I feel like a lot more competition than we realize right now is going to go away, like of the traditional competition, because like there's a bunch of independents that you know have become insolvent, and we just don't hear about them. But in aggregate, they're 25 percent of the furniture market. Uh, there's a lot of regional chains that like, you know, just haven't bothered to file bankruptcy yet because they can't run a liquidation sale right now. Um, it's kind of hard to declare bankruptcy at the moment. So that's going to happen. But then for your point, Amazon and, you know, the most healthy, well-resourced of the surviving retailers, is, you know, are all going to want to grab that share. Nobody's going to want to just abdicate it to, to Wayfair. So it's going to be a, an interesting battle to watch play out. Um, but Dan, that's going to have to be a good place to leave it because we have slightly exceeded our allotted time, uh, but we were enjoying our conversation so much that, uh, we thought it was well worth it. So we really appreciate you, uh, taking the time and, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again so much for thinking of me and having me on the show. This is, uh, this is the stuff I, I'd stay up to talk about this to anyone who listens. So, <laughs> so, so thank you. I, it, it, it's been a lot of fun for me too. Thanks, Dan. We really appreciate it. And I think, uh, you know, my goal is to learn a couple of things every day. I think I've filled up uh, at least the rest of the month and maybe July. So really appreciate it. You're being too kind, but thank you. <laughs> and until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing. Subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 